0: Last time on H.I. 101, we covered nearly 80 years of background to the Chinese Communist Revolution. In the simplest of terms, China was significantly weakened by foreign powers, then fractured by the downfall of its imperial family. We left off just as Chiang Kai-shek, leader of the Republican movement in China, solidified his place at the head of the government. Today, we'll look at how Chiang managed to lose that same power in little more than 20 years. Let's begin. Here on HI101 with Gary Hallman. Hello. Welcome back. It's been a while. It's nice to be back. Yeah. This topic has ended up being like more daunting. I keep saying this, but more daunting than I expected. Who knew that China had such a complicated history? I know, right? Um, And as we talked about in the last one, we've decided to expand this to three parts. So we're on part two, and like any good trilogy, this is going to be probably a little rushed. Uh, not have the most satisfying ending. It's we're, probably gonna be the best out of all three episodes. We're, we're queuing up uh, the conclusion to this uh, and, and you're gonna really be able to tell from the ending. But that's okay. As you said, a lot of the a lot of the time the second one's the best one. So yeah, I promise there's gonna be no ewoks in the third episode. Yeah. It's gonna be great. <laughs> we'll do our best, I promise. But yeah, last time we we talked about a pretty good chunk of time in in China's history, basically going from uh, the mid nineteenth century with the uh, the Opium Wars, uh, all the way up until the uh, the late nineteen twenties when uh, Chiang Kai Shek and the Kuomintang party managed to kind of unify China uh, under one banner um, at the end of the uh, the Warlord Era. Right. Right lot to go over. This time, I think we're going to focus in a lot more. Uh, Our time period is going to be a lot tighter. And I know a lot of people are probably thinking by now, hang on, what about all those communists? And I'm very sorry to tell you that we're really not going to be talking about the communist point of view, at least for most of this episode, because what I want to focus on here is how do we go from an imperial system that lasts thousands of years in China to a fairly strong republic under uh, Sun Yat-sen first, and then afterwards Chiang Kai-shek with a fairly powerful army, with international legitimacy, all of that. How do we go from that to a communist revolution in the course of a couple decades? And I think the easiest way to sort of watch how these events unfold is to really keep an eye on Chiang Kai-shek throughout all of this and watch for some of the missteps that are made by the Chinese Republic in this era. So... We end, off la- we end off last time. There's a you know, big dramatic battle uh, near Beijing. You remember the Japanese army was involved with the uh, siege at Jinan that was uh, ultimately not taken by the Chinese forces. There was a warlord in Manchuria that refused to fight on Japan's side against uh, the nationalist forces. Uh, he got blown up on a train. All of this good stuff. We're gonna pick up in the aftermath of all of that with a real attempt to present a, a unified front to the world of China's back and it's one p- power now, and everything's good. And this is the beginning of what's known as the Nanjing Decade, named after the fact that uh, the Kuomintang uh, made Nanjing the capital of China in this period. And if we're looking from like extremely bird's eye view at this point, it's kind of like, oh, Nanjing Decade, things are calm, things are relatively stable. Uh, a lot less fighting than during the Warlord era. Uh, There's a lot of progress in terms of uh, industry. There's a lot of uh, progress in terms of educational reforms, language reforms, governmental reforms. Uh, They're really kind of pulling their act together. That impression of things would be extremely false.
1: I mean, you know, where we left off last time, you were saying that it's just still a pretty turbulent time within the international scene. Sure. You know, a lot of imperialist intentions out there. So I mean oh definitely. Lots of uh, you know, advances in communication and, and whatnot. And that obviously brings a lot of mm-hmm. new things to the forefront. You know, one of the things I, I find really interesting is you talked about this thousand year destiny or or um dynasty rather. Mm-hmm. And uh was just reviewing what we had kind of talked about last time and how there was always this, you know, geographical boundary and how the further along we're getting into kind of the new century here just you know those things aren't necessarily the same you know limiter they were in terms of like communication right you know all of a sudden it's a lot easier to you know physically have a republic
0: yeah definitely yeah yeah there's there's a lot of things that change in the 20th century that make those ideas of uh you know centers of power and spheres of influence um a lot different because the edges of those things used to be a lot Fuzzier, mm-hmm. and now all of a sudden, it like really solidifies up. One uh, really strong example throughout this this period, I actually wasn't really planning on talking about this all that much at all, uh, would be Tibet, which for the longest time was sort of part of China, but sort of not part of China, and had kind of broken away, especially in the in the turmoil of um, the downfall of the of the emperor, and they had very different ideas in Tibet as to what being independent meant Mm -hmm. than, than China did because China's going like, yeah, definitely you're independent to be uh, a suzerain nation under the sphere of influence of China and are going to do what we say. And Tibet's going like, no, we actually want to be like our own country. And China's like, yeah, no, no, we get it. Yeah. Under our rule and and like there's that sort of back and forth where they they end up being a little bit of a, a thorn in China's side because and it's 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 not even because there's some sort of like major revolution or anything in Tibet it's because they just have this different idea of what exactly the power structure is supposed to be here both of them are saying yes it's always been that way but they just have a completely different viewpoint of what that way has been because they're kind of on these fuzzy outer borders of China right yeah and they always were you know, more or less Aligned with China geopolitically, but, you know, also more or less free to do what they wanted.
1: Yeah. And it's it's a lot easier to say, like, well, we're just going to let you do what you want to Mm -hmm. when the reality is, it's like, well, we can't technically force you to do what we want you to do because we don't actually have... The physical manpower to do that right now yeah so, exactly you know it's kind of like saying like i totally wanted to go to the store anyways even though you were going there anyways you know
0: it's no big deal <laughs> you, you know it's it's funny actually the the 13th dalai lama actually raised an army against china and there was battles oh really yeah you think of a dalai lama as being yeah. a very very peaceful man uh not in his past life i guess yeah i guess not not throughout the history <laughs> not particularly anyway we're getting off track already and it's very early in the episode so must be H I line here we go. <laughs> yeah, let's let's get back down to um the the uh, the Kuomintang and their attempts to sort of solidify things. Remember when, when they took Beijing, a lot of the legitimacy that comes along with that is that they got a bunch of the warlords to actually sign on to their legitimacy as rulers of China. That's what really makes this different than the warlord era. Now, obviously they don't get all of the warlords on and the further west you go into China, the less likely you are to have somebody who is a Kuomintang supporter. Um, uh, I'm going to use the the phrases Kuomintang and nationalist pretty interchangeably, but in in both cases we're talking about like the the Republican, somewhat democratic uh, government that's a continuation of the the revolution okay. uh, founded by Sun Yat Sen. Uh, they're very much trying to like carry forward those values that we talked about last time of democracy, uh, nationalism, that they really believed was going to put. Uh, China on the world map, uh, bring them back up to the level of status that they had had previous to the 19th century and previous to that interference by um, Western powers. Western powers, yeah. So the the first thing that they do, uh, besides getting that support of the warlords, is to completely uh, disavow any continuity from the previous government in Beijing, that that Beiyang government. That was the one that was left over by uh, that that uh, one warlord who had declared himself emperor briefly. Right. All of that stuff. Yeah. Um. They're they're basically going no. This is a this is a clean fresh start. We are a new game in town. Uh. These uh, nationalist forces are not the same uh, entity. We are going to be the ones running China from now on. And remember, just before they do all of this, they had almost wiped out the communist factions within the Kuomintang Party, Um, that Sun Yat-sen had been a lot more comfortable keeping uh, uh, around, but who uh, Chiang Kai-shek disagreed with uh, uh, wholeheartedly, to the point that they had slaughtered most of the members um, on their way north to Beijing. That being said, the remainder of the communist elements end up regrouping uh, further south in in Wuhan, and they decide to try establishing a rival government, basically saying, well, we could be the ones to uh, to run China instead, kind of looking like it's going to end up being fractured again. Right. Um, but Chang isn't interested in allowing this to continue. He sees the communist forces because they were so close to him and because they were so close to the power structures of the new China as one of the biggest threats that, is, uh, that he faces as leader of China now. There's also still Japanese forces on the continent in Jinan, where they had failed to take uh, the city in the siege during the uh, Northern Expedition. So he's got to deal with the, the Japanese as well before he can really claim that he's got uh, all of China under control. Also, as much as the warlords are saying that they've pledged allegiance to uh, the nationalist government, they still do are very used to having their own way. I mean, it's kind of
1: like they're going to go along to get along while the
0: getting is good. Yeah. Kind of thing. That's a very good way of putting it. Yeah. I mean, they're very much seeing this as much as an alliance as more so than necessary, uh, necessarily uh, subjugation. Mm -hmm. They know that they couldn't on their own uh, take the nationalist uh, uh, army. They've just proven that in, in battle against the Bayang government, but they're also not uh, united enough among themselves to pose uh, any sort of challenge or. Yeah, so why risk being wiped out? Let's just go along with how things are for now. You also have the Soviets in the north. Keep in mind, most of the nationalist armies' uh, armaments have come from the Soviets, provided through the International, which was that uh, organization that the Soviets were using to promote international uh, socialism. Mm-hmm. They basically took all of those weapons, turned it against the actual communists in their party, and used it to throw their own coup. That's not a good way to get on Stalin's good side. Right. There are other conflicts we're not going to have time to get into. This is all extremely complicated, and I really want to keep us on track for that communist revolution by the end of this episode. So we're going to ignore some of the issues they had with the... um, uh, what they would call the Muslims in the in the Western provinces, the Uyghurs. Am I saying that right? Uyghurs. Can... Yeah. Uyghurs. Thank you. Yeah. I always get that one wrong. As I said, in Tibet, there's uh, clashes uh, with the Soviets, like on the border. So Chinese and Soviet forces are actually going to fight at different points uh, along the way. Um, but none of this is seen as terribly important to Chang himself compared to Chinese communists and the Japanese. So this new government basically has. A three-step plan towards unification this is how they're going to get thing done the first step is going to be is is finished at this point it's through military force so the northern expedition taking beijing back uh destroying the Beiyang government getting a monopoly on military force within china and they've essentially managed to accomplish that goal at this point so great we're on to step two this is known as political tutelage so that's basically establishing democracy, but also teaching people what it means to be a democratic citizen.
1: Right. People people take for granted like democracy is such a foreign concept to so many people throughout history, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, the, the idea of being a good citizen is not something that just naturally comes to people. And at the risk of sounding a little bit dismissive, keep in mind that Up until now, China is an extremely agrarian country. The vast majority of Chinese citizens are extremely poor, uh, extremely illiterate peasants. And the idea of having any level of civic participation isn't just foreign in that way that they're kind of going like, oh, if only I could vote in, a, in, a, in an election, I'd be so happy. But unfortunately, I'm repressed by the. No, no, we're talking about this Confucian uh, society where not only is, is democracy seen as foreign to that, but the idea of knowing your place within that society and knowing your place within the ranks of that society is as ingrained in these people as if not more so than, than what we would think of uh, for democracy here. I mean, civic participation is not a natural thing. And uh, the Kuomintang is very aware of this, that they're going to teach or they're going to need to teach people what it means to participate in a democracy.
1: Right. So, you know, societal harmony is perhaps different
0: than equality. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's a big change. Yeah. Now, the dark mirror to all of this is that when you're teaching a populace how to be a good citizen from scratch, there is obviously the temptation to do so in a way that is going to greatly benefit you if you're the one holding that military power from step one. Um, We'll get back to that. They saw step three as being what they called uh, constitutional rule. And that would be full success in their eyes in turning China into a functioning modern republic. And constitutional rule meant that not only are the Kuomintang holding force uh, or holding peace within China through military force and attempting to educate the populace, but that there is actually a functioning democratic government in place that doesn't require the application of military force onto Chinese citizens in order to function. So like a judiciary or? All of it. So yeah, the judicial branch, but also a a properly functioning executive and legislative branch. They want an actual constitution in place. They want whatever their version of a bill of rights is going to be. They want all of that, all of the mechanisms of government, all the underpinnings of government to be in place. Easy. Yeah, no problem. Right. Yeah, it's simple. Um, Because right now they're functionally teaching people democracy while they're all under martial rule, right under martial law, which they understand that the optics of that aren't necessarily uh, ideal. Um, But that third step is where we're really hoping to be. We're squarely on step two right now, though. Let's teach these people what it means to be part of a republic. And that is slow going as I mentioned earlier, it's going to mean a lot of improvements to the uh, education system. It's going to be a, a major push for literacy. There's going to be a concerted effort with Chinese um, scholars at this point to adapt and simplify uh, the writing system. So um, I'm, I'm not sure if you're in any way shape uh, any way familiar with this, but um, Chinese characters often have a traditional and a simplified version right and the simplified is much easier to read like in terms of like recognizability and write uh, in in a lot of cases i mean i'm i'm being very reductionist about it but this is the era in which that idea of simplifying the writing comes into play the mm-hmm. idea being like okay it's really hard to learn like a good 6000 characters to be literate let's try and give people whatever help we can the uh, the government's going to encourage industrialization in this era they're going to also start unraveling China from like international entanglements so some of those leftover imperialist obligations from the 19th century they're going to slowly start kind of picking away at those extracting themselves from some of those uh, those agreements now they don't want to raise any uh, hostility obviously but this is a good era to be doing this right this is post-world War one a lot of these uh, Western powers that they're worried about are both very interested in self-determination as a concept for global rule. So it's kind of easy, even if they don't necessarily want to relinquish control, it's kind of easy to get them tangled up in their own rhetoric on stuff like this. Right? Right. Um, It's also post-World War I, meaning that we are in a league of nations era. This is a, Respect for borders, respect for boundaries. Not just that, but bending swords into plowshares, never again, uh, a conflict this big, war to end all wars, all of that stuff. Well, you got to wonder too, where the
1: Americans kind of come into this, right? Uh, in what way? In, in the way that you've got now, like a clear dominant, or maybe not a clear dominant nation at this point, but a new player on the field. Who they is, are
0: very far away from being clear dominant. Uh, yeah, absolutely, yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely.
1: But a new player, to be sure. And I know they were a very big proponent and pusher of making sure that this thing was legit.
0: Yeah, well, yes and no. I mean, how much time do we have here to talk about right, right. the U.S. and the League of Nations? But I mean, you know, you have this awkward uh, situation where their their president goes and advocates for all of these points against the, um, uh, you know, for self-determination and all of that at the Treaty of Paris or at the Treaty of Versailles and then comes back and is unable to ratify it at home, thus rendering it basically worthless, right? The um, The United States in this era is still very much in the throes of... The Monroe Doctrine of of, um, basically mind your own business. You know they're going to stick to their you know with the various addendums that are added to that later. But uh, very isolationist, not interested in getting other people's business. I mean constantly do, but for very self-interested reasons. So like, yeah, they go and fight in Russia after the Russian revolution on the side of the white Russians, right? But that's because they don't want the spread of communism. So like, there's, there's a little bit of that, Mm -hmm. but it's very selective. It's very brief. And it's, um, as soon as it's done, they're, they're pulling their, their forces. As soon as there's any actual risk in any way to the United States or its interests, they're out again. And so all of this is happening Right around the time that the stock market's about to crash. So that gives you a bit of a sense of where the United States is at. Right. They're very wrapped up in themselves right now, and they love making money, and they don't really care what's going on in the rest of the world that much. So not sure how much that helps. But if you're looking for somebody that's going to be that sort of uh, dominant, almost world police type power in the world, you're still looking at Britain, at least until after the Second World War. Which, you know, is comical. A, A
1: little bit. A little bit. You know, self determination. You know, except for India and you know the Commonwealth.
0: Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. But they're all Britain, so who cares? Yeah, exactly. Why would you want to leave? <laughs> um, anyways, let's get back to it. So yeah, we we've got we've got this interesting thing that's going on with all this uh, political education, though, which is that remember before Sun Yat Sen uh, died, he had spent a bunch of time hanging out with Stalin and getting to know uh, some of his ideas about government. And as much as Sun Yat-sen was definitely a Republican, certain ideas from Stalinism really appealed to him. For example, the one-party state. He saw a lot of uh, potential efficiencies there where you could basically devolve certain uh, functions of government down into the party level rather than at the state level modeled on the Soviet government. And so there were a lot of points at at which uh, Chiang Kai-shek disagreed with Sun Yat-sen the one party state was one place that he agreed he saw that as the easiest way to maintain power because yeah it's a democracy but if there's only one party then the only thing you have to worry about is you're standing within your own party not the chance of being defeated by another party and i think they really told themselves that this was like a you know a temporary situation until they got the constitution in place this and was then a, maybe a more multi-party right like so many one-party states do right so but but you know, there, there's also not an informed populace here who can go like, hey, one party states tend to be kind of dictatorial, like they just don't know. Right. That's just not a thing that anyone's worried about. And so for the rest of this Republican period, anytime we talk about the Kuomintang, which is just a political party, you're essentially talking about the government. And that's why that interchangeability between the National uh, Army and the Kuomintang and the Republican government, those are all basically one and the same. There are going to be inter-party squabbles, obviously, all the time, but it's not the same thing as having like a healthy multi-party democracy. And, and so what it really means is that instead of actually having a national assembly, like a proper legislative body, the Kuomintang assembly functions as the national body for all of China. The first step, as we talked about earlier, was mopping up that communist influence let's get rid of those communists once and for all how hard could it be we ho- we killed a whole bunch of them on our way up north this should be fine right they're seen as a liability not only because of like it's not just like a personal thing right like it's not just like an ideological thing it's also the fact that they have such close ties to the soviet union which is by far the biggest power um that china is worried about militarily at this point in time right and as long as there are communists in the uh, like active communists within China there's a risk that uh, the Soviet Union is going to decide to support them and topple the republican government so let's take care of that first there's also the ideological stuff but like there is like a clear and present danger there the communists actually attempted another uprising in August of 1927 but they ended up being betrayed by a Kuomintang member Wang Jingwei who Sorry, Wang Jingwei, who was left leaning but not actually full communist. And this is in that we're still in that murky period where you could be a communist and a Kuomintang member, right? But not all Kuomintang members were communists. Were communists. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, all of that. And Wang was definitely left leaning, as I said, but like not that far left leaning. They wasn't like overthrow the government left leaning at this part. And so he decided to rat on them, and uh, it gave the National Army a chance to rally and response. It turns out this uprising had actually been directly ordered by Stalin in June as a response to the Shanghai massacre. He was Stalin had taken the whole thing quite personally. Um and understandably so, like he had had a lot tied up in that revolution, you know, both kind of financially in terms of like funding the whole thing but also uh personally. I mean, this is this is um we talked a little bit about it, but like th- this is that first real attempt. Well, I mean, there'd been other uh, smaller communist revolutions, but this was the first one that looked like it had a real fighting chance. And he, Stalin had decided to back it in that he wanted to see communism start spreading internationally. That's like the ultimate goal of, right. of communism, right? Even though Stalinism in particular kind of focuses on communism in the state, like you know, strengthening one state at a time, he saw this as time to spread it to a second one. So the uprising is put down within days because the national army knows everything about the uprising that's coming. And so it's actually fairly easy to deal with, but really that uprising marks, uh, if you're looking at, at current day Chinese history, like, you know, history from China, it it kind of marks the beginning of the Chinese civil war, um, as like the first direct action of the, of of the, uh, communists against the Republican government. So I'm
1: guessing at this point, this new defeat doesn't kind of check Stalin. This
0: probably just infuriates him all the more. I mean, Stalin is not going to be a big player in today's episode necessarily. I think he's going to see it as like a wow, these communists can't be trusted. I, you know, can't fight their way out of a wet paper bag type thing. Maybe. Yeah, you want to back big. the winning side more than anything, right? Sure. And and I think he I think he's showing that, you know, giving someone a direct order like you need to you need to retaliate for what happened to you and just flubbing it this badly is kind of like a uh, all right, okay, fine. I see what's going on here, um, and and kind of draws back. But like this is this is pointed to in modern day China as like the founding of the Red Army. Like this is where it all begins, and even though it's defeat. A, a stunning defeat. Now it does also offer the uh, th- this whole incident offers the Kuomintang uh, an opportunity to kind of move more towards the center politically speaking. They had been pretty strongly uh, right leaning under Chiang Kai Shek, and there was a recognition that that wasn't necessarily the most appealing thing. There's this worry that people who don't necessarily agree with how far right Chang was would gravitate towards the communists. And so there's sort of a, an internal strategic decision made to uh, bring uh, Wang into the leadership and present a, a, a more centrist vision for the, the uh, country moving forward, mostly to alienate uh, the actual communists who are still left. And this dynamic sort of appears within the Kuomintang, which, in general, uh, and obviously this is a this is a, a generalization, but generally older and more senior uh, members of the party are right leaning, but there's a lot less of them. But they right. hold the most power. Whereas um, the vast majority of the party is younger and left leaning, but much more junior in rank. And Chang quickly discovers that he can play these two sides off of each other to keep just that right amount of tension within the party because keep in mind as long as he's at the top of the party he's at the top of the country it's one right. party state so if one movement or the other gains enough uh, momentum within the party he could potentially look at a viable challenger but if he's going to both parties and whispering in ears and making it seem like he's on their side he can stay on top while uh, preventing too many alliances from forming and he is not going to be able to keep up this whole puppet master thing for very long, but he does definitely give it a try. His biggest mistake very early on is pushing too hard in search of demilitarization. He believed that the National Revolutionary Army should be the only legitimate armed force within China, which isn't a revolutionary statement, right? Right. You know, if we're talking about any other country here, you know, the French army should be the only army within France. Like, yeah, of course. But we're just coming off of the the warlord era, right? And all, there's all these warlords who have tacitly supported the National Army who are going like, wait, wait, wait. wait. We're giving you the only thing that makes us useful. Y- you, want, you want us to give you our army? I don't think so. <laughs> that's not going to happen. And it's, it's just it's too much for them. There's a, it, it leads to a, an outbreak of, of uh, military action. A bunch of warlords break away from supporting uh, the, the national government. And uh, 1929 to 1930, you get what's called the, the Central Plains War, which is basically a bunch of these warlords saying, we're not giving up our armies, and they're going to fight you for it. And it's not a small thing. This is over one million combined forces between wow. the two sides go at it during this, this conflict. So it's not a small thing by any means. During all of this, the uh, Soviets basically go, huh, interesting. The National Army is kind of occupied at this point in time. Maybe we should try and take advantage of this. And they push into Manchuria to take a bunch of the railroads. In there. Remember, these railroads are the same ones that have been an issue in previous conflicts the Russo Japanese War, the, you know, a bunch of those smaller uh, conflicts trying to get that warm water port on the, on the Pacific. And there's not really a whole lot that the uh, Kuomintang is able to do to stop this. And that conflict basically ends with them going, all right, fine, whatever, keep those railroads. We need to deal with these warlords that are coming at us. The theme for the rest of this show is going to be there's no good place to pay attention for Chiang Kai-shek because there just won't be one. And it's going to look like he's incompetent in a lot of these cases. But at the same time, it's really important to think like, what would you do in this situation?
1: Right. It seems like people are just taking advantage of a strategically,
0: you know, vulnerable period. Yeah. If you look at any revolution, if there are more than two sides, whichever sides are in the middle are going to be the first ones that are eaten. That has been true of, of virtually every revolution in history. You you look at the French Revolution and you look at the moderates, bye-bye. you bye know, You're better off going hard one way or the other um, in a lot of these cases. And I know that the Imperials are gone at this point, but the Kuomintang is still trying to walk that middle line of pleasing the warlords, but also refusing to join the communists, but also holding off the Soviets and also the Japanese are still here. Do not forget about them. They will be coming back. It's kind of like, there's a lot of situations here where you can look at it and go, I don't think you picked the best place to pay attention, but I also don't think that the best place necessarily would have saved him in any of these situations. Well, we're also looking at it through the eyes of history, right? With perfect information in hindsight. Oh, of course. But there's so many parties looking to take advantage that no matter where he goes, it's either commit everything somewhere and leave something unattended or commit a little bit everywhere and probably not be strong enough to counter anything.
1: I mean, it seems like he's in all of these situations just left with calculated risks. Yes. Right?
0: Yep. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, now the Soviets have more control over the railroads in Manchuria, there's heavy losses on both sides in the Central Plains War. The anti-Chang forces, the warlords, are finally defeated when Zhang Xilang, uh, he's the son of the guy that got blown up in the railroad accident, okay. remember? He's the one that was, he, he's barely better than a mercenary, basically, that had, had his forces up in Manchuria, right? He leaves Manchuria where, and him leaving, I kind of mixed the order here, but him leaving Manchuria uh, with his more or less mercenary force to come support uh, directly the nationalist forces against the warlords is what leaves it open enough for the Soviets to come in and take it. Um, But his forces combined with the National Army, which he basically hands over to the National Army as a a show of good faith, um, is what is enough to end the threat of the warlords to um the national power but at least for the time being so okay finally we have the warlords taken care of uh the soviets don't seem to be doing anything else but that's okay the national government was nearly bankrupted by this little two-year skirmish because it it costs a lot to keep that many soldiers on the fields and you know it's wild sometimes winning a war is more costly than losing one right this is one of those situations where the coffers were running pretty empty and that's when the Japanese forces decide to take advantage of the further weakness in Manchuria. Because all the Soviets really cared about Manchuria were the railroads. That's all they wanted. The Japanese wanted the land. They wanted those the natural resources. resources. Yeah. They wanted the industry. Remember the huge numbers of percentages of their in, uh, of their uh, uh, sorry industry that, were, that was in Manchuria at this point in time. Like over 90% of their production was in Manchuria. The Japanese want that. Uh, they felt short shrifted by uh, the Treaty of Versailles. They didn't see any point in uh, allying with the West anymore. They were just going to take what they wanted so that they could establish a Japanese sphere of influence in the Pacific. And they know that the Kuomintang is weak and broke, and they know there's no army there in Manchuria, and so they just move in. This was done as <laughs> something something is known as the Manchuria Incident. Uh, Their their premise for moving in, because they couldn't just unprovoked walk into Manchuria, I guess, was that on the 18th of September, 1931, uh, Lieutenant Suemori Kawamoto detonated a small quantity of dynamite near some Japanese-owned train tracks in Manchuria. It did not destroy the tracks. In fact, there were trains that went by very shortly after, unmolested. They were fine the Japanese were very upset at this uh, uh, act of clearly Chinese sabotage and decided to use that to uh, beef up security in the area. And that's basically how they justify this whole thing. Sometimes with this incidents like this, we kind of find out later, like much, much later, that like, oh, like this was a false flag. Like this is a this was a plot by the Japanese. They knew within like a year what had happened, like the, the world at large knew right. what had happened. This incident allowed the Japanese forces to roll into uh, Shenyang province with uh, exactly two casualties uh, compared to many uh, Chinese ones and occupy the entire thing. Zhang ordered his forces not to engage directly. A lot of people saw this as very treasonous. The reason he did this was basically because his forces weren't enough to take on the Japanese army. Yeah, it would have been suicide. Yeah. So, I mean, there's it's one of those little bit more complicated decisions there was there was some thought to it this wasn't just straight up a trail but remember that Zhang's father had been working with the Japanese for years and years and years and so the optics of all this look really really bad for Zhang really bad the Japanese establish uh what they call uh uh, the independent state of Manchukuo in Manchuria so they basically annex the entire thing all premised on this little incident that everyone knows isn't real and set up, uh, again, it's not Japanese territory. They set up a new free independent state of Manchukuo, And they install, as the leader, the former Qing emperor Puyi, who's still alive. Oh. To add an air of legitimacy to the whole thing. Uh, he was a puppet. He was just paid a lot of money to do this and had nothing else really going on with his life at this point. I mean, he was born to rule China. Here was a little piece of China for him to rule. Um, yeah. It's a little bit sad, honestly. Really? It it is. China basically went to the League of Nations and went, did you see all of this? Like, we can't handle all of this. Like, we can't take Japan directly right now. We don't have the forces. We don't have the funds. You guys are supposed to be keeping world peace. And they just took a huge chunk of our land, of our resources, of our industrial capabilities. Please help us. And the League of Nations decided not to recognize Manchukuo as consequence for what had happened. And Jap- uh, Japan went, okay, uh, I guess we're just going to leave the League of Nations then. And that was that. People talk about the League of Nations as being like a, a United Nations forerunner and in like certain ways it was, but like it it had no teeth even compared to the modern United Nations. It had absolutely nothing. You needed everyone to buy into the idea of the League of Nations for it to mean anything. And the second somebody didn't, uh, they held all the cards. There was nothing. They, the rest was bluffs. So call the bluff, and you're you're free to do whatever you want. Right. Meanwhile, as all of this is going on, again, where do you turn your attention? Right. In 1931, uh, Mao Zedong, who I think this is the first time we actually talked yeah, about him. Yeah,
1: absolutely, it is.
0: Who has been active in the uh, in, in the communist movement uh, for some years now, has risen through uh, the ranks, decides to found. What's known as the uh, Jiangxi Soviet. Uh, Soviet uh, Soviet is a, a Russian word for uh, council, basically. That's all that that really means. It doesn't have much more significance than that, even though it gets uh, used as a stand-in for the USSR. He uh, he establishes a, a, a communist government basically in Jiangxi, far to the south, way away from where the the national army is is stationed. They're worried about the Soviet Union. They're worried about Japan. They're worried about the warlords to the West, the South wasn't supposed to be an issue. And so it's been relatively undefended. Chiang Kai-shek immediately abandons Shenyang. He goes, okay, we're going to fine. We'll deal with this Japan problem later. We need a unified China. And this was, this was always his focus in this. We need a unified China before we can deal with international foreign threats. And as long as there is a home threat, we just, we don't have time for it. And this wasn't necessarily popular with all of, uh, uh, the Kuomintang leadership. This is one of those issues that he just pushed a little bit too far.
1: Yeah, like Japan's right there. They're yeah. coming for more. It mm-hmm. is going to happen yes. in the immediate. Whatever this else in the South might turn into is still undecided.
0: Right, exactly. And and this was not lost on a lot of the leadership, to the point that Chiang had to step down as, as uh, oh, leader wow. of the KMT uh, to go. And he basically stepped down as a condition saying, like, if I step down as president... Give me an army to go after the communists, and they're like, "All right, fine, go, whatever, deal with them." So he goes after the communists again and begins what's. Uh, he spends a couple of years basically trying to penetrate down to uh, the the uh, the capital, the the communist capital, Jiangxi, and four different times he tries running these military uh, incursions into territory. But the problem is, it was extremely rural and there was a lot of sort of guerrilla warfare and there's a lot of not really certain who supported the communists and who didn't. And, and correct me if I'm wrong,
1: like that terrain in South China is very jungle.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's very humid. Yep. It's, 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 uh, it's quite difficult. And time after time, Chang finds himself at the end of an extremely long supply line, unable to maintain Uh, all the things he needs to actually run a military campaign and having to fall back to is his great shame. He's being defeated by a handful of communists is the way that he's kind of seeing this. And so he begins what's known as the encirclement campaign. Uh, The fifth time he tries going after the communists in 1934, he doesn't do this like, you know, heroic military push in. He begins building blockhouses. Blockhouses are like little tiny fortresses. Um, Really quickly uh, popped up manned by just a few soldiers but within line of sight of everybody else and he begins basically circling the entire communist area sounds like walk-outs. a very roman idea but it works really well yeah because what he does is he starts cutting off their supplies remember they're still being supplied at least to some extent by the soviets doesn't want those those uh, supplies getting through anymore right and he sees it as kind of like a, a containment uh policy he's going to Cut off the communists from the rest of the country. He's going to uh, neutralize them by exclusion. And this is actually really effective. It works quite well. And anytime communist forces kind of try and slip through, they're destroyed, like completely and utterly. The communists aren't dumb, they see what's coming and they start making plans to escape the south of China. And this is a big part of sort of the mystique, the uh, yeah, the mythos of yeah. the Communist Party is this is the beginning of what's known as the Long March, uh, a term I'm sure you've heard of before. Yeah. Um, Mao manages to slip out past the blockades and less than 40,000 soldiers managed to get out, which, I mean, 40,000 still sounds like a chunk, but they had m- much more than that before. And keep in mind that the, the National Army is in the millions. These uh, soldiers, to keep a kind of complicated story very simple, end up marching several thousand kilometers uh, until they settle in Shanxi. I mean, you know, Mao's version of this has them marching like ten thousand kilometers or something stupid like that, which is just right. physically impossible. Like not, not just for human biology and the amount of time given, but also like you, there's not ten thousand kilometers you could go. It's it's likely more like three but still a significant. That's still a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's over the course of more than a year. But less than 10,000 of those soldiers, of those 40,000 soldiers that got out, uh, actually managed to make it all the way to the end of this march. And there's lots of, you know, communist propaganda, state propaganda today about how as they're marching along, they're proselytizing uh, communist dogma to these people. And the reality of it is they were all sick and starving and uh there was squabbling among the the leadership and mao nearly lost control of the party at this point in time and you know it was a, it was a miserable time for him they were being hunted by the national army the, every step of the way they they really could have been utterly destroyed at that point in time the fact that they weren't still kind of miraculous uh, kind of amazing um but yeah there's there's not a whole lot necessarily that romantic about the whole thing it was pretty miserable right The unintended consequence of all of this, though, is that a good chunk of the national army, and therefore a good chunk of the entire government's funds, are going into chasing this little band of communists around the country, a band of communists that looks extremely non-threatening.
1: Right. They're all half-starved, sick, undersupplied. What are they really going to do?
0: More than a year chasing these guys around. Chang is starting to look a little Captain A-habby at this point. Yeah. And the leadership within the Kuomintang is getting extremely upset with uh with Chiang Kai-shek at this point. Well, I'm sure this entire time, you know, you've probably got Japan beefing up security. There are like little border skirmishes here and there where there's, you know, misunderstandings between uh customs checkpoints and you know things like that it's it's very very tense along the border with Manchukuo, and it feels almost like chang is the only one who can't see it at this point but he's also got so much power as uh generalissimo of the of the national army that it's like leave him alone like he'll be there still he'll be out in the 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 weird jungle wherever he feels like hanging out, talking about his weird, like whatever. Uh, We're less worried about the Soviets now because uh, there's been uh, a number of uh, battles between um, the Soviets and, you know, warlords on the on the northwest of of China. So they're not really getting supplies through the way that they used to. Just leave Mao alone. Come come deal with the Japanese. They're clearly the bigger threat here. And it gets so bad that Zhang finally breaks with uh with Chiang Kai-shek he's no longer willing to like enable this behavior and he basically goes to Chiang Kai-shek with like a full battle plan like this is how we're gonna do it this is how we're going to oppose the Japanese this is how we're going to take Manchuria back this is how we're going to take our country back and once that's done then we can worry about the communist man and Chiang says no And Zhang goes, fine. And he and a number of other people create a conspiracy. They all get together and they kidnap Chiang Kai-shek. This is known as the Cheyenne incident, December 1936. They stick him in this little cabin at gunpoint and basically tell him, we will not let you go until you redirect the forces against the Japanese. This is ridiculous. What are you doing? Enough is enough. And they basically bring in communist negotiators who have been wanting an end to this war for a long time because they're going to die. They're not going to be able to survive. And they basically bring them in and say, okay, you negotiate with them now. Figure out a peace. We're done with this. And Chang finally does it. He negotiates with them. He ends the civil war against the communists. And Basically, the terms there are that the Communists pledge to loan all of their military support, what very little there is, uh, against um, no, uh, to the national army, against the the Japanese. They're going to ex- uh, accept the legitimacy of Kuomintang rule. They promise to oppose Japan, like very, very simple things. And they let Chang out and the first thing he does is have Jean arrested for his part in the plot. Zhang will be kept in house arrest for 50 years. Wow. As a consequence of all of this. Can you imagine that? 50 years? He will be... I, I mean, not. Th- th- there's no spoilers in a, in a history show, but that means that he was dragged along with the Kuomintang to Taiwan. Wow. And kept under arrest there. Huh. Chang did what Zhang wanted him to do. But he never forgave him for it. He never forgave him for it. I believe there was plans at one point at one point in the 90s for uh, Zhang to visit uh, mainland China, but it, it never came through before his death.
1: so I'm very curious and I, I'm you'll have to forgive me for diverging here, but I'm very curious to, as to how the Communists look back on Zhang and the part he played in ending this like is he looked back favorably?
0: I don't know that's a really good question I, i'm I'm not sure I think he's seen as a i mean he was he, he, Zhang was not a communist he did not support the communists like cause. he he sold them out yeah yeah no but, but that's what i'm saying he he sold he 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 probably saved the communists from utter destruction, but he did not support the communists. This wasn't done as a favor to the communists now, how that's seen in china I'm not sure. I can't imagine he's held up as a hero of the revolution because keep in mind everything that happens in this era. Relating to anything between the Communist Party and the Republicans is—it's all Mao, right? Mao did all of it, right? And and the idea there were no supporting cast. It was no, 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 no. The idea that they would need a Kuomintang member to step in, to intercede uh, to prevent their destruction is not something that they would be all that interested in necessarily embracing. Whether or not it's mentioned at all, whether or not Zhang is, you know, recast as a secret communist, I have no idea. I honestly don't know. Um, it would be interesting to look into. But, uh, yeah, I, I I wouldn't be surprised if he's just sort of not in the book. Okay. As it were. Anyways, why don't we take a quick break here? Because, yeah, the, the very next thing that's going to happen is... As everybody's been saying all along, the Japanese are going to attack and things are going to get real hairy for uh, the Nationalist Army. So, yeah, let's uh, let's take a break and we'll come back to that shortly. Back on H.I. 101 here with Gary Holman. Hello. And uh, well, the thing that everybody's been saying is going to happen is about to happen. You know, as we mentioned, you know, since 1931, basically, little incidents keep cropping up at the borders and uh, little skirmishes going on. But I think, for I I think for the for that whole period between 1931 and 1937, any time one of those skirmishes comes up, it's really a question of like, okay, well, is this the one? Like, is this the one that escalates? Is this the one that gets out of hand?
1: I mean, the last one was such a minor incident. It's Mm -hmm. kind of hard to say. Well.
0: Well, completely fabricated incident. Yeah, absolutely. let alone clashes with actual Chinese troops. You know, they're, they're, so often with stuff like this. Rather than it being a, a an intentional sortie that that starts off a war, it's you know there's there's a there's some sort of misunderstanding at a border and it just spirals out of control. So. You hear stories of you know uh, things heating up at the the border in, in in Korea or something like that, and everyone gets World real War worried one. about it, and it's you know comes back down. Yeah, World War One, exactly. And and it's it's very much that throughout the 1930s for China. When is it going to be the one that spirals out of control? Turns out that uh, it's going to spiral out of control July 7th of 1937. There's an incident near the uh, Marco Polo Bridge outside of Beijing, and you know there's nothing really that terribly special about it other than this time uh things don't cool down they escalate and escalate really quickly um one thing that is a little bit different in 1937 as opposed to earlier is that we do have those communist troops that are at least on paper uh allied with the uh, uh with the national army at this point the communist troops have gotten very very good at Guerrilla tactics. They're very hit and fade. They're very, you know, improvised explosives. They're very whatever we can find we use. Right. And that's not something that necessarily the National Army is used to working with. They're much more professional than that for the most part. The communists took their uh, sort of mandate to be attacking Japan fairly seriously. And as things escalated, there's kind of a point where maybe. Even though uh, there was a you know this this massive battle at the bridge, maybe it could have still been brought back around. But as soon as it looked like the battle was sp- spinning out of control, communist forces immediately started moving in to like hit Japanese uh, emplacements in Manchukuo and hitting sometimes Japanese towns in Manchukuo and really going to town on them. Um, they were kind of, ready to fight somebody other than the legitimate government of China at this point. Right. Maybe this is a bit of a cynical way of looking at it. By the end of the war, this is certainly going to be true. The question of when it comes into play is maybe a little bit up in the air. There's very much a, a, a an intent behind the communist forces to distinguish themselves from the national army. They want to be seen as different and they want that difference to be better. And in a lot of cases, when it comes to China... They're sometimes going to take actions that might not be the most, like, tactically prudent, but will give them a talking point against the Kuomintang. Right. For example... Uh, whoa, the, the Japanese started a battle at the bridge of Marco Polo and the government just wanted to like play it off like it was nothing. We, the communists, went ahead and started fighting the Japanese on your behalf because we're the real... Uh, the real know. deal. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're we're the real heart and soul of China. This is what China really wants, right? And the reality is, yeah, actually, Chinese citizens were really scared. Extremely scared and for good reason. The Japanese army is extremely well-equipped, Very modern, very powerful, well-funded, have been taking other military actions throughout the Pacific, are well-trained. This is something to be scared of.
1: You know, the the ultimate irony of this being that probably the thing that gives Japan the most legitimacy into fighting china is
0: well we're actually fighting the communists nobody likes communists <laughs> you know I, I i don't know how much of that was really necessarily explored so much of the uh, i i yeah I, I you're not you're not entirely wrong there's almost a, a, a question of like well do we just let them fight it out with the communists but right. uh, but but japan is so unapologetically expansionist in this era that they don't really care who they're fighting as long as they end up with land out of the deal there's uh, after the battles outside of beijing uh there's a three month three month long siege at shanghai uh that eventually falls to the japanese japan levels 200,000 troops at taking this city as as soon as it goes down the uh, the the japanese army turns their attention to uh uh nanjing which is the capital, right? That's where right. the capital of, of China has been for the last decade, hence the name of the decade. That is where the Kuomintang has their seat. They start in at Nanjing uh, near the beginning of December of 1937, and by December 13th, they've taken the entire city. Now the reason for that is that leadership saw what was coming, and they basically stripped anything that was all that valuable in terms of like running the government out of Nanjing, and they fled. They moved the capital. So at this point, is
1: Japan dispelling all all notions of we're just there's an incident here. they want the whole kit and caboodle. they want all all of the land or are they looking yeah. to try and take the seat of the government to get them to sue for, you know, sue for a piece that would benefit them that would enable them to legitimately hold on to more
0: land? Right, I'm trying to think how best to answer that because it's a complicated question. The the communist sorties into Manchukuo definitely gave them all of the excuse they needed to expand into China, because the the communists, remember, are tacitly endorsed by the government of 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 China as just other Chinese troops, right? By that peace that's signed uh, by Chiang Kai-shek under duress, so in terms of like international law there's no functional difference between communist forces and the official government of China right so yeah i mean it gives them uh, an excuse to start up this war that they've sort of wanted for a long time now pushing in taking shanghai going for nanjing those are all actions that are very much like a almost preemptive strike sort of thing. Let's cripple their ability to uh, fight back against us as quickly as possible. If we can throw their government into disarray, so much the better. A lot of what the Japanese forces are trying to do in this era is uh, take coastline, um, control coastline, and uh, take major government centers because most of the industry they've already taken. Uh, Let's circle back to Nanjing, though. I think it's uh, really important not to uh, get too far off of that. When the city falls on December 13th, there really isn't a lot going on in terms of defense. Remember, the government's pulled out, but the uh, Imperial Japanese Army stays for six weeks in Nanjing. This is what uh, is known as the Nanjing Massacre. Sometimes you'll hear it uh, referred to as the Rape of Nanking, Nanking, Nanjing being the same city. Over the the course of uh, six weeks after the city falls to Japanese control... I mean, the numbers are tough on stuff like this, but between 50,000 and 300,000 Chinese citizens are murdered by Japanese soldiers. Hmm. As many as 20,000 women are raped, there's rampant looting, there is uh, all sorts of unspeakable things happening. Uh, we talk all the time on the show about how probably the worst possible place to be on Earth is uh, inside a city after it falls uh, uh, after a siege Uh People do horrible things. Uh, e- even even kind of correcting for that general rule of thumb, uh, this was a very, very bad one. Um, the commander of the army is actually going to be recalled by uh, Japan for his lack of control over his troops. It, in a lot of ways, it sets the tone for the rest of the war between China and Japan. This by the way, is collectively known as the Second Sino-Japanese War. But this is really, on a larger scope, probably the most proper place to pin the beginning of World War II, because this conflict is going to spiral out into the Pacific campaign of World War II. Um, A lot of times we sort of peg that to the the invasion of Poland, right, by the Nazis. But this is already going for two years before that happens. And you got to imagine that the whole world is watching this go down at this point, right? Absolutely. Certainly. But this is also, and and this is, this is, I mean, there's many, many tragic things about this, but keep in mind, this is also the area where the whole world is watching uh, Germany take bits of Czechoslovakia and basically say, well, you know, what can we do? Let's let let them have a little bit of land and maybe that'll be uh, enough that we can avoid war. This is very much the area of uh, of appeasement. And if they're willing and, and, I, I say this more acknowledging the the attitude of the West at this point in time than than uh, a personal judgment. But if they're willing to let all of those things happen in Europe, uh, imagine what the West is willing to let happen uh, to China at this point in time. right. It's not exactly an era known for its uh, sensitivity, uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, the world was aware. And yes, they did very, very little to uh, to stop it. i mean, the 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 United States is worried about Japan in this era. Uh, largely, it's because the United States has a number of territories that Japan has its eyes on. That's the biggest reason. Right. The Soviet Union is also somewhat concerned, but Japan doesn't really seem that interested in invading uh, the Eastern Soviet Union. There's not a whole lot there. Whereas yeah. China, there's a whole there's a whole lot that they can accomplish there. Um, so they kind of sit back in a way, just sort of let things go down. So yeah, I, I mean, in in terms of in terms of the brutality that happens there. Uh, that's that's what we're going to continue to see from Japanese soldiers for the vast majority of this war. It's not as though China doesn't have its own black spots. We'll get to a number of those. Um, but yeah, it, it starts off pretty brutal pretty quickly. So as I, as I mentioned, Chang had uh, withdrawn the government to Wuhan. So the plan basically at that point, you know, when Wuhan started looking a little bit uh, dicey, they pulled back even further west to Chongqing. The plan basically is to fight a slow war of attrition. Basically, we've got a ton of people and we've got a ton of land and there's only so much that the Japanese can cover at a given time. Let's pull back. Let's make it difficult for them to advance and overwhelm them with numbers and time. And as they pull back from the front uh, with the Japanese, they adopt a scorched earth policy. They start destroying uh, farmland that could be harvested for provisions for the Japanese army. They make sure that there's nothing left there for them to eat. They make sure that there's no buildings for them to requisition. Any uh, uh, material that needs to be left behind weapons, vehicles, things like that they make sure that they're not usable by the Japanese and that's kind of their best hope at this point in time. The Japanese army tried to overwhelm uh, the national army into a quick surrender in 1938 taking a number of major cities but uh, it, it's it's not quite enough. The Kuomintang continues to uh, pull back. This kind of escalating uh, action culminates in what's known as the Yellow River Flood. And this is one of those moments where it's hardest, I think, to understand what exactly um, Chiang Kai-shek was thinking. You can sort of get there with some stretch, and a lot of the issue there is hindsight. But Here's what happens. National Army leadership decides that um, it might be prudent to slow down the advance of Japanese forces on uh, Wuhan at, the, at this point in time by uh, opening some of the dikes on the Yellow River, allowing land to flood because it would be a little bit more uh, difficult to cross. They're hoping to basically keep the, uh, the Japanese army from circling around, crossing the Yellow River, and and taking Wuhan with basically uh, no resistance at this point in time. Something goes wrong. One of the dikes does not function as, as intended. Um, they end up destroying a number of the dikes, uh, to open them up more fully, and they destroy more than they should have. The entire uh, floodplain of the Yellow River uh, is flooded by water and silts. Uh, this, this incident in 1938, uh, entirely uh, caused by the, the national forces, drowns somewhere between 400,000 and 800,000 oh, Chinese citizens. Over 10 million people are displaced from their homes, uh, thousands of square kilometers of farmland are destroyed, many of which are just completely underwater, uh, the rest of which just have their topsoil washed away. It's no good. It's, it's, uh, it, it takes years before any of this is uh, uh, salvageable. It's, it's considered one of the largest acts of environmental warfare in human history, the majority of which is uh, Chinese leadership killing or mis- uh, or displacing Chinese citizens. The immediate goal of defending Wuhan is largely unsuccessful. They basically go north. uh, The the Japanese army goes north of the floodplains and manages to get around with very, very little trouble. It's initially uh, blamed on Japanese bombing, uh, the flood, that is. That's not a story that sticks. It fairly quickly comes out that this was a, a government action. And it creates this sort of situation for uh, the Kuomintang where there are Chinese citizens who millions, millions and millions of Chinese citizens who have just had the most horrible thing uh, that will ever happen to them in their entire lives happen at the hands of their own government. And now they're they're forced to choose between advancing Japanese forces on one side who are known to be absolutely brutal. And the government on the other, who is responsible for the greatest betrayal they've ever seen. Right. Clearly dispassionate at best. They all, they all, I mean, all is unfair. I can't, I can't say all. There are so many people from this region recruited into the Communist Party of China. There are so many people recruited in. Because here's the thing: yes, the Ch- the the communists are technically on the same side as the Kuomintang, and yes, the forces are technically working together with the government military. No one believes that. This is this is all very like partners of convenience. Yeah, and even then, there's very poor coordination between all of them. So there are Chinese communist agents inserted into this uh, this floodplain, this region, that basically just go village to village, telling everyone. Who did this and why and the fact that it didn't accomplish anything and who's to blame? And by the way, there's this other group and they actually have your interests at heart. They're actually fighting the Japanese. They're not running away. They're not flooding Chinese uh, fields. They're not drowning Chinese citizens. They're here for you. They couldn't ask for a better recruitment uh, situation. They couldn't ask for it. That's the kind of thing that they that, that that other revolutions have faked to try and get recruitment numbers, and it was just handed to them. It's always hard to look back and pick like a single turning point, but if I had to on the communist revolution this in be. China, I think this would be it. I really, really do because communism is complicated. It's a really difficult concept to communicate uh, to. Honestly, it can be a difficult com- uh, concept to, uh, to communicate to educated people, let alone... Peasants. Yeah, I was going to say illiterate peasants specifically. But this, this is easy. This is easy. You don't need to understand communism to, you know, to, to be at the lowest point in your life and have someone come along and say there is an alternative. And here's what it is.
1: Right. At least these guys aren't trying to, you know, actively kill you.
0: Yeah. Throughout 1939 and 1940, there are some Chinese con- counter-offensive launch uh, launched against the Japanese forces. Limited success. There's not a ton of experience here with modern warfare. When you're at war for so long, it doesn't really, especially with such weak uh, uh, industry, it doesn't really give you a lot of time to iterate, right? Whereas the uh, West has been doing nothing but finding new ways to blow each other up for the last little while. The national forces are getting some supplies from Britain through India, which means that they're not getting very good supplies, specifically through Burma. But Burma ends up being taken by Japanese forces, or or at least partially occupied by Japanese forces, uh, in 1941. And that cuts off the road through uh, the Himalayas, so they can't really get supplies through. The only real way of getting supplies from the Allies to uh, China to help them fight against the Japanese is to fly them over uh, what they call the hump, which is you know a nice low part of the Himalayas, a mountain range known for having low parts, right? Right. They're getting very limited support from the Allies. They're not technically uh, allied with Britain really until uh, America joins the war in uh, the at the end of 1941, at which point they're made like formally an ally. But that's exactly when their supply lines get cut off. So they never really have like a really good stream of material.
1: Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but this this stretch, this particular like flight mission mm-hmm. is, is kind of a little bit infamous yeah. in World War II for being one where, you know, you're basically flying from India yeah. to China yeah, and people would just run out of gas and not make it.
0: Oh, yeah. No, it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. Besides, uh, knowing what we know about Britain in the mid 20th century... Keep in mind, they're supplying China because they're hoping that China can help them in Burma. How much importance do you think they're putting on Burma compared to, say, the Battle of Britain? Right. Not a lot. Not a lot. They also have their North African campaigns going on right now. Yeah, they're not, China's not getting the best stuff. Japan, in the, in the meantime, is like one of the better uh, uh, equipped uh, armies in the world at this point. I mean, they're, they're, no German army or British army, but they are are more than a match for the Chinese army at this They're point. They're
1: certainly modeled off of both of those.
0: Oh yeah. Everything that they could uh, take concepts from, they were happy to take them. Uh, it gave them an extremely effective fighting force. Japan, meanwhile, is trying to basically create puppet governments along the coast of China rather than like administrating directly. They don't want to have to deal with that basically. And it's not really working that well. The puppet governments that they set up aren't really doing what they're expecting. They're not really autonomous enough. And so they're in this weird spot where like, they don't want to like finish off China, but they don't want to uh, firm up their borders necessarily. So they're trying to kind of abdicate some of this power, but they're not willing to give up enough power to form actual autonomous states that could uh, hypothetically defend themselves. Meanwhile, The communists are seeing extremely flashy success with these guerrilla raids. They're going in, they're hitting hard, they're blowing stuff up, they're making sure everyone hears about every single hit, they're recruiting aggressively, Uh, anyone that, you know, they're going into those villages that we talked about, anyone who's willing to join up, great, now their army is growing faster than it's ever grown before. Anyone who wasn't willing to join up, they killed. It was a great time for the communists. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They were basically labeled as a Japanese collaborator at that point, uh, was sort of the the very thinly veiled rationale there. You know, not looking to forgive anything, but it is interesting to think who might be willing to reject, you know, the national government and the communist government, but not be working with the Japanese at that point I mean you know people are complicated I, I'm, I'm sure there are many who are legitimately in that situation but I can almost again you can see the the mental gymnastics yeah yeah it. yeah it, it, it almost makes a little bit of sense it, it is kind of like oh well, who wouldn't want to join up at that point It's yeah. a lot of people who have lost a lot Relations between the communists and uh, the national government really break down in 1941, and you see uh, open hostility between the two forces. There's actual battles between the communists and uh, the national army at this point. Nothing um, massive, but there there's like out-and-out battles, because the communists just wouldn't do what the government was telling them to do. They were growing as quickly as they possibly could, and it was clearly at the expense of... Uh, the national government.
1: And the scales are kind of starting to balance out a little bit more.
0: Well, I mean, those, those same people who are seeing them as not a threat at all are suddenly seeing them as a very real threat for very good reasons. So, yeah, it's kind of a get in line or we'll put you in line sort of situation. Now, at this point, like the Soviets are involved and the Americans are involved, kind of, because neither of them are technically at war with Japan yet, but also... Uh, they all have interests in China, sort of, and they don't want it to collapse, not because they are like looking to invest in China, but because they are worried about Japan, and China seems to be the only thing holding Japan back at the moment. Keep in mind, there's a whole other Pacific campaign going on throughout all of this, right? You know, the Japanese are taking over all of those Pacific islands, the Southwest uh, Southwest, sorry, Southeast Asia, uh, all of that is happening uh, in tandem with all of this. So it's not just China; it's just we're also talking about China today, not the Pacific campaign. So, you know, that's that's where some of those nerves are coming from. That the the Japanese have worked their way down almost as far south as uh, the Philippines at this point. So um, America is getting very concerned, right? And then Pearl Harbor happens, and that changes everything because all of a sudden. Uh, America is much more directly involved with everything, and at first it doesn't change a whole lot on the continent because, you know, the whole idea of Pearl Harbor from the Japanese point of view was, well, we destroy their navy and then they don't come over here and it doesn't matter if they're mad at us or not. Have you ever seen the film Pearl Harbor, Gary? <laughs> I have seen the film Pearl Harbor, <laughs> the, the the Michael Bay, oeuvre, Pearl Harbor. Do you remember the end of Pearl Harbor where he kind of forgot that he made a movie about a a, a military defeat? And he loves the American military a lot, so he had to, like, tack on a little raid against Japan so we could show them what America was really made of. Do you remember that part? I I, I do, and I, I, I seem to remember the
1: whole, like, one guy sacrifices himself for the other guy. Sure. Yeah.
0: Aerosmith play? No, that's... Hang on. Wrong, no, that wrong, was... Wrong, uh, wrong Michael Bay. Wrong Michael Bay.
1: That was... Um,
0: it's Armageddon. Armageddon, yeah. I knew what I was doing. <laughs> Um, yeah, so so that that was actually a real mission. It, it took place much later than I think they uh, suggested in the film, but that's that's what's known as the uh, the Doolittle Raid, April of 1942, in which 16 uh, B-25 bombers launched off an aircraft carrier in the Pacific. Uh, they hit Tokyo, Nagoya, and Yokohama, and those 16 uh, bombers managed to kill a grand total of 50 people and injured maybe about 400 or so it was about as symbolic as you can make a military mission so those 16 planes couldn't get back and and this i do actually remember this from the movie they couldn't get back to their aircraft carrier which in the movie they made it sound like that was like a spur of the moment decision you can't land a b-25 on those aircraft carriers it's impossible but this was always the plan so you couldn't get back to the aircraft carrier so they just kept flying Right over China and or right over Japan and landed in China. And the Japanese response to this raid is absolutely mind boggling to me because they open up an entire new offensive campaign known as the uh, Zhejiang Jiangxi Campaign, in which 40 infantry battalions and 16 artillery battalions rolled down across the coast of China looking for these 16 planes. Those planes have like a crew of like five. There's under a hundred American airmen and they send 40, sorry, 56 battalions looking for them. That would make for such an interesting movie. You know, this may have shown up in movies and here's why they were, it wasn't just a search party. They rolled over Chinese civilians, The whole premise being, well, maybe you're harboring American Right. They killed as many as 250,000 civilians Uh. in this raid. And they didn't just do it with conventional military means. This is not a topic that I want to get into. I think people love talking about this. Personally, I find it a little bit morbid and I don't want to stick on it. But there was something known as Unit 731 that had been going in Manchukuo since the mid-30s. And it was set up as like, uh, you know, on paper, it was a infectious diseases clinic, research clinic. Uh, In reality, what happened in Unit 731 uh, was, I mean, it gives the worst of the Nazi scientists uh, a real run for their money. Lots of weird medical experiments with no real purpose. They, you know, a lot of um, uh, forced infections, a lot of uh, vivisections, like dissecting people while they're alive forced pregnancies, uh, really horrible stuff. But the main, uh, one of the main thrusts of, of Unit 731 was studying biological warfare, hence the, the cover as a uh, you know preventative uh, uh, clinic. During this, this campaign in, in 1942, they deployed a lot of this biological warfare that had been developed at Unit 731. They used uh, weapons containing cholera, typhoid, dysentery, uh, the Black Plague against civilians during this. They actually ended up, the, a good chunk of the Japanese uh, casualties in this campaign came from being hit by their own biological weapons. It is, uh, again, they just keep topping themselves with like horrific actions against China in this whole thing. Unit 731 ends up with a very similar fate to what you would see out of uh, Germany with Operation Paperclip. Uh, a number of uh, Japanese scientists and doctors would be given immunity by the United States in exchange for their uh, research notes, most most of which were not of any consequence whatsoever. It's a, it's a really sad parallel with some of the better known stuff out of uh, Nazi Germany. Throughout 1943, I, I mean, you know, the Allies are really trying to get more supplies to uh, China, but it's really not working out all that well. They're very impressed with China's ability to hold back Japanese soldiers, but it's still not going all that well for them. You know, as a whole, they're not able to get uh, weapons through the Soviet or from the Soviet Union anymore. uh, Specifically, because of those warlords that we had talked about earlier, that were against the Soviets, that were making things hard for uh, the communists. Right now, it's making things difficult for the national government, who they found themselves ironically allied with the Soviets because of. You know, geopolitical dynamics during World War II.
1: Right. Um, so, so even at this phase, the northern
0: warlords are still being uncompliant. Well, there's this there's this one warlord in uh, Xinjiang, which is kind of the the most. Uh, northwesterly province. It's a very large province. That That's where you would bring things into China if you were sending them from the Soviet Union. Uh, He fought a fairly long battle with the Soviets, and it kind of ended with a loss of territory to the Soviets in exchange for full autonomy on his part. And he basically vowed never to work with the Soviets ever again under any circumstances. And it was so far away from what was happening in the East with the, the Japanese that the National Army couldn't spare the forces to go and get this guy in line. And so they basically hushed the whole thing up. They wouldn't admit that they didn't have control of Xinjiang. They just couldn't afford to. Right. So, okay. no, they don't have full control, I guess, is the, the short version of that. But, yeah, that's, that's why. It's, it's, he was a lot less dangerous than the Japanese. Again, it's a, it's a matter of focus of attention, right? Right. The Allies really wanted those blockades broken, they really wanted access to the ocean through China, which they just didn't have because of those Japanese campaigns down the coast. Uh, they destroyed a lot of Chinese uh, uh, air bases, so they couldn't airdrop things in as easily. Um, they actually had to like drop stuff in rather than land them at proper airfields or land them a really long way away from the fighting. But there's all this pressure from the Allies to help them out while China is in the middle of this invasion. So you've got the the Americans going like, you know, they're killing us in the, in the, in the Pacific. Can't you spare some ships to to take some pressure off with the Japanese Navy? And it's like, no, we, we super can't. Or you've got Britain going, listen, we really want to take back Burma. Can't you send a bunch of soldiers to help us take back Burma? And it's like, we're actively fighting a front with Japan right now. What do you want from us? Uh, they do end up actually giving uh, or sending some troops to fight in Burma because, uh, the decision is made uh, that opening that road between Burma and China would be tactically advantageous because they'd actually be able to get more supplies, supplies in. And- but Britain's still not willing to commit their best troops to Burma, right? It's it's not their best stuff. They're not sending their best guys to India. Um, they want to keep India, but maybe not as badly as they want to, you know, take Europe back from the Nazis. Um, right. so it's their not, attention is elsewhere. Yeah, and yet they're still putting this uh this expectation on China to fight to their top standards, which is a little unfair, you know, just just saying. In 1944, they finally managed to break through in northern Burma. They don't take all of Burma back from the Japanese, but they do finally open the road and these supplies start pouring into the country and it really turns the tide uh, against Japanese forces on the ground. After that offensive with the biological weapons, which, by the way, literally everyone in the world knew about, um, there was a big push from Japanese uh, leadership to basically, like, rein things in, get things in line. They were starting to worry about how the war was going to turn out, uh, especially with uh, uh, the Americans starting to roll up the Pacific. No one was going to necessarily talk about the, the chances of uh, defeat at that point, but maybe less civilian slaughter, maybe more defending of established borders was sort of the the party line there. Right. In spring of 1945, the uh, better supplied uh, Chinese open up a counteroffensive against Japanese forces, start actually taking taking back lands. Yeah, yeah, they take back Hunan, they take back Guangxi, like they they start actually taking back real cities, real territory. There are plans in place uh, along, you know, they've they've actually got help of, of British and American uh, uh, military commanders. Uh, they've got plans in place to take back uh, Guangdong to obtain a port that they can start actually uh, sending naval missions out of uh, to resupply American ships, things like that. They've got plans in place actually to... Move as far north as taking back Shanghai again, which is which would which would be huge. That would Very be symbolic, a, well, and it would be a perfect staging ground for finally moving into Manchuria. And then August 1945 rolls around, and the atomic bombs fall on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and that's that's the war. That's it. It takes a couple of weeks before the Japanese uh, leadership actually. Uh, surrenders, but that's pretty much the end of it. In February of 1945, there'd been something known as the Alta conference. I'm not sure if that one rings a bell. Basically the Soviets, the Americans and the British got together to decide what the world would look like. uh, Now that things were all going their way. Right. And one of the things that was agreed to at the Alta conference was within three months of Europe falling, the Soviets would begin a land invasion of manchuria against the japanese start hastening the end of the war that way so they they gave them three months to get troops rested uh resupplied and moved across the continent ready to invade japan and there's a lot of i i don't want to get into the whole atomic bomb thing that's a a tricky road. Well, it's more just we don't have time to go through all the possibilities. But one of the things that's been discussed uh, as as uh, a potential motivation for actually using the bombs is a demonstration of power against the Soviets to show them, like, listen, we could use this against you, too, if you get out of line, right? Um, another uh, reason for it is if we end or, or proposed reason for it is if they end the war soon enough, then it'll limit the Soviet ability to take a whole bunch of formerly Chinese territory and give them that warm water port they keep lusting after. So uh, the same day as the second bomb is dropped, August 9th, is the day that uh, the Soviets start rolling into Manchuria. And there's an agreement made with Kuomintang leadership, basically assuming that for all intents and purposes, the Kuomintang is the only legitimate government force in play in China here, that they were okay with the Soviet Union coming in, but that they wanted to be the ones to accept surrender from the Japanese. So go ahead, knock out the armies, but the land and the actual surrenders need to be given to national troops.
1: So at this point, Japan has already surrendered to the Americans. Not
0: just yet. It's Not going to be yet. about two weeks okay. before they surrender. Okay. So. Soviet troops roll in over the border. They attack the uh, the main Japanese force in Manchuria, which is over a million soldiers, and within two weeks, uh, fight them into submission. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. No one was expecting it to go that quickly. And it really scared the uh, rest of the allies, and it really scared the Chinese. This is not an enemy that they wanted to have. The Kuomintang leadership, and Chiang in particular, realized they don't have any forces in Manchuria yet to take surrenders. And what's more, the communists do. And they get a little bit worried that maybe some of this land will get surrendered to the communists, who will then use it as a base of operations to re, uh, reuse, or restart. That's the word I'm looking for. The Civil War. The Civil War. And so they do this really interesting thing that you kind of alluded to unknowingly before, which is they order the Japanese troops to retain control, military control, of this land even after the surrender, the general surrender, until Kuomintang forces can come and take the surrender. The Soviets, in the meantime, who have had an extremely bloody war, by the way, an extremely bloody war. That's something that I think is getting more recognition these days, but used to not be as recognized as it should. They lost more people than any anyone else. Well, absolutely, well,
1: and a lot of these guys, they're coming from the the Western front, mm-hmm. shipped over to the Eastern front. Yeah, like
0: I can only imagine. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. No, they've they've had a they've had an incredibly hard war. They start dismantling a lot of that industry that's found in Manchuria and shipping it back home to the Soviet Union because. Stalin's in the middle of a new economic plan. They need whatever they can get they, that's uh, not bolted down. What's more Soviet than some factories, right? Uh, no, they, they ended up taking a whole bunch of it. More than half ends up shipped back to USSR. And then, surprising nobody now, but I, I think really surprising Chang at, at the time, started turning over the factories that remained to communist forces. And not just factories, but war material that had been given up by surrendering Japanese forces. And we're not just talking about rifles. We're talking about tanks and artillery. Like...
1: Real war material.
0: Real war material. Real stuff. Over the course of the war, the Red Army had grown uh, from, remember, just just a few tens of thousands at the beginning. They had grown to over 1.2 million in the official Red Army. And they could call as many as 2 million more militia if need be.
1: So what's the size of the Nationalist Army at this point?
0: Um, we're still talking about a couple of million, but not not that much more. They are out of money. They are extremely tired. And they are not ready necessarily to go toe-to-toe with the Red Army here. The Red Army, the communists have fought a really good military war, but a much, much better propaganda PR campaign war. yeah yeah the the uh, the messaging was so on point for all of this stuff they had attracted so many supporters it's unreal by the end of the war and you know you you get, you come away with the sense that chang is wondering well how, like how did this happen like how did this happen to me where did i lose control where did it all go wrong and you know going through this i've i've tried to clarify as much as possible like yeah there's some major missteps but not all of the issues here are missteps a lot of it is just like I'm not sure what you could have done differently. Do you focus on uh, you know Japanese buildup in 1931 and ignore the communists and yeah, allow like, them to gather strength in the south and then they come for you afterwards?
1: Well, the Soviets giving away you know the keys to the most valuable land factories mm-hmm. like how's that a
0: misstep? Yeah, that's just misfortune. Yeah. And, well, and and what's more, I mean, you know, you look at the end of the war, and uh, if you look at at just sheer casualties, um, civilian and military in World War II, which, which we really need to talk about this as part of World War II, China comes in third of all the players. It, it is, it is many, many times more deaths. It's, it's, it's over 20 million deaths in World War II. Like you, you look at something like Britain and I think it's, uh, I'm going to say the wrong number. I was going to take a guess. It's, it's well under 10. I think it's under five. Uh, I'm thinking under two. It's, it's it, A lot of other countries are not seeing that kind of uh, devastation. Um, the Soviet Union is far and away the, the number one, and, and Germany is number two. China is number three, and, and then you have to reduce the number of casualties quite a bit to get to number four. Quite a bit. It's, it's, it's uh, shocking how many people were killed uh, in this conflict, uh, and we're not done. Like, I mean, we're, we're, we're not done here. By the summer of 1946, the Soviets have pulled out, but the Communist Party has control of most of Manchuria, which, as we've stated many times, is some of the most valuable uh, land in China at this point in history in terms of industry and natural resources. Chiang Kai-shek launches an offensive against the Communist forces in July of 1946. And initially, it's, uh, it's quite successful. They make a really good effort of it. But over the for, uh, over the first year of this con- uh, this conflict, nationalist forces lose over one million for uh, uh, one million uh, troops. In that same time, In during the year, yeah, during this same time, during this fighting, the Red Army increases by more than eight hundred thousand. They're up to two million regular troops. So you have nationalist forces just abandoning their posts and defecting to the communists you have more and more people joining up in the red army getting trained because they believe in this cause this is a full blown populist cause this isn't you know this isn't uh, the last time where you have this like scrappy little upstart of of communists barely squeaking through a chain of uh, blockhouses there is there is real public sentiment behind all of this and yeah, I mean, of course, of course they're going to lose the war, right? Every, every victory for uh, the Communist Party means more uh, weapons for their forces. It means uh, more resources for their forces. It means more people turning to their cause. It completely snowballs. Throughout 1948 and 49, the Kuomintang switched capitals five times because they keep falling back from communist forces. It is a complete and utter rout after 1947. There's around six million casualties uh, in the 1945 to 1949 period alone. Wow. On October 1st of 1949, Mao Zedong proclaims Beijing the capital of the new People's Republic of China. There are still a few pockets of resistance that are fairly quickly crushed after this over the next couple of months. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek, the rest of the Kuomintang leadership, uh, and about two million soldiers that are still alive retreat to the island of Formosa what's now known as Taiwan and on December of 19 in December of 1949 uh Chiang Kai-shek declares Taipei the uh quote unquote temporary capital of the Republic of China and that's the end of the communist revolution at least the military phase of the communist revolution okay a lot of times in in history, at various levels, there's this question that comes up, which is: Were World War One and World War Two kind of one big conflict with a gap in the middle, or were they two separate conflicts? And the question is designed to make you think about a number of different things, uh, a lot of them being um, along the lines of uh, you know inevitability in history, or uh, causation in history, or you know th- these these sort of you can always trace the line back further, but does that necessarily mean that at a certain point, something was always going to happen? But it also gets you to think about systems, right? It gets you to think about how World War II was related to World War One, how the grievances of uh, the, the conclusion of World War One fed into- um, The beginning of World War II. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as, as I did all the work for this topic, especially, I, I was reminded of that. If only because it's almost laughably small in the Chinese context, where I'm kind of looking at all of this and going, you know, were, were the opium wars and the Chinese communist revolution part of the same conflict? Because, yeah, it's it's 100 years long, but there's so many points along the way where it sort of feels like this is the only way it could have gone. And, of course, that's not the way that anything works. Well,
1: but it really does feel like
0: there's such a strong through line for all of it.
1: And I mean, it does feel it's a Chinese issue Mm -hmm. where there's just interlopers consistently, you know, it's like they can never resolve their own internal issue without an external factor coming in.
0: What's that century of humiliation, right? Like this idea that there is a hundred year period, almost exactly, almost to the year 1849 to 1949, where there are always foreign influences there. And before that, China was great. And it was great. This is not, that's not... That's not some uh, uh, state propaganda. That's true. That is objectively true. It is one of the great civilizations of the world. And what happened to it in the 19th century was, I I think humiliating is not an unfair word. And it took a lot of suffering for them to break away from that and return to something even remotely resembling uh, what they had before the Opium Wars, even if it's only in the context of independence. Right. Right they suffered a lot for all of that and you know when 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 i first when we first started talking about this topic we kind of when i oh, you know the communist revolution that should be interesting to see where that comes from you just can't i couldn't i couldn't make it i couldn't make it happen Anymore without brief? looking at all of this in totality you can't talk about it without talking about japanese expansion you can't talk about it without talking about british expansion you can't talk about it without all of these constant betrayals by so-called allies from the west that keep throwing them under the bus whenever it's convenient and you can't talk about it without these communists coming out on top in this way where they can say we're finally the first ones to do this alone as chinese and chinese only we are the true successors of Sun Yat-sen's ideas of a an independent nationalist system. That is what he wanted for China since the very beginning of the 20th century. We've done it. We're, we're finally independent. We can finally run this alone. We're free of J- Japanese influence. And we're going to create a system under this new ideology that, honestly, right now is working okay in the Soviet Union. This is the way that we're going to go. And we're going to make... China into something important, uh, once more. I mean, yeah. All right. I I get it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, at least for the first time you've got demonstrable proof that you've got a group of people that are, you know, purely, I mean, like you said, it's a big PR campaign campaign and you're, it's either you're with us or you're against us. Oh, certainly. But you know they've they've got some demonstrable proof in this war that they are out there putting the proof to what they're saying.
0: Let's look at the leadership for the past hundred years. You've got the you've got the emperors. They sold us out to Britain, essentially, as well as other as well as other uh, Western powers, but mainly Britain. Or we're at best indifferent. Sure, but but often often like explicitly uh, uh, complicit. They fall to the Republicans, and with the death of Sun Yat Sen. Uh, you have Chiang Kai-shek who comes in and is, and as much as he proclaims to be for China, refuses to face the Japanese until his hands are, uh, are is forced, refuses to uh, address the uh, dangers of getting back in bed with these Western powers. In fact, he actively seeks it during World War II. Like, this is, you know, is that the guy we want leading? He was willing to murder nearly a million civilians for a single military maneuver that didn't even really work well. Is this a person who has your interests? And then you have the communists and they've done nothing but fight Japan and they've done nothing but stand up for, you know, the little man, like it's, it's very, it's very rosy.
1: And at least that's the mythos they've worked very hard to create. Yes.
0: It's very rosy and it's not, it's not accurate, but you, you know, you as a Chinese peasant in the 1940s, comparing your options and being told you've got to you've got to join up somewhere
1: i mean you know where would you roll the dice and you know it's pretty easy to see which side you'd pick
0: Mm -hmm. it's pretty easy anyways um i think that's where we're going to leave things for today in the third part of this topic uh we'll 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 get a lot more cozy with mao i know that's kind of what everybody wants to do get to know the guy see what's going on we'll talk about um and we'll, we'll roll things back a little bit we'll talk about his position within the the party we'll talk about his views his beliefs and kind of what what happens in 1949 when all of a sudden he realizes oh like i lead china now i lead china now i'm the one so uh that's the general plan but yeah for now i think that's uh that's gone on long enough today okay <laughs> Chiang's focus on domestic issues and unifying China, a country that has famously and successfully weathered discord many times in the past, led to a blindness to the threat of Japan that, at least in terms of popular opinion, made him a much less appealing option for a leader of the country than the Chinese communists. Mixed with many no-win decisions, outside influences, and sometimes just poor leadership, the Kuomintang lost control of China just as quickly as they had won it. Next time on HI101, we'll focus on the new leadership of Mao Zedong because, as we know, winning power is nothing compared to keeping it. A quick thanks to everyone for their understanding of this little unplanned hiatus we've recently had. We'll try to get things back on a regular schedule soon. Uh, Until then, we'll be back with Part 3 as soon as possible. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101. hi 101